Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. We're going to do things a little differently this week because it has been such a crazy news week with the tech stocks, with Trump, with you name it. Uh, And I'm going to welcome my once in a while co-host, John Kelly, to the show. Hi, Nick. John. I'm here. How are you? I'm thrilled. I'm honored. Great. Uh, John, you want to tell tell our wonderful guests what we're going to do this week? Yeah, Nick, it's been a really nutty week, um, even by the standards of our very nutty times. And so I wanted to turn things around here a little bit. And um, I have five burning questions about what's going on now in Silicon Valley that I wanted to ask you. And, and it is worth pointing out for a second that this is the first time, I think, in in a year or a year and a half, maybe longer, where, like, of all the power centers that we cover at the Hive, uh, Silicon Valley is, again, the most fucked up, the, the one that is the most on fire. So I'm just sort of noting that uh, historical beat um, right now. And I, I want to ask you the Hive Five, five burning right. questions about what's really going on and how you see the world and what you think is going to happen. Okay. Are you Go. ready? Ready. All right. Question number one. Will Mark Zuckerberg ever get fired? And I'm asking you that, of course, because Facebook had this flash drop at the end of this week where you know, it lost $150 billion in value. Zuckerberg was literally losing millions by the second. It seems by some estimates that the company's bad news has caught up with it and, and user growth has stopped. A lot of other companies would have fired this guy already, right? But is Zuckerberg indomitable? Well, it's interesting you asked that because let's just put this in a little context. Uh, on Wednesday evening, uh, right before uh, the before Facebook uh, went through its its Q2 earnings, um, the company was at an all time high uh, valuation over six hundred billion, highest stock uh, price that it ever had in its history, twelve year history. Uh, and then earnings came out and they missed estimates on. A few things. Uh, user growth has slowed down. Some people have, of course, left the service. Uh, the uh, uh, They missed their estimates on revenue. Not by much, a couple hundred million, but still. Uh, and as a result, in a matter of two hours, the stock fell $150 billion. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg personally lost. It, it fluctuated back up, so it ended up dropping to about $120 billion at the end of, of the craziness. But Mark Zuckerberg lost uh, around $20 billion himself. I did the math, and what's so fascinating <laughs> is he was losing $2.7 million a second uh, during this free fall, which is double what the average American makes in their entire lifetime. So just to put it into perspective, but what, so, you know, we come into Thursday and the stock is still down. It's down 20%. Uh, this is a real, a really big deal because for, for so long, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook have never really had to deal with the consequences of, uh, of the Russia investigation of how Facebook was used to affect and subvert the election in 2016 uh, he is just, you know, he he he's just kind of floated through it, and just it's been turbulent. But that's it. Uh, finally, it caught up to us, and it was fascinating because I was trying to, I was wondering when this was going to happen. Last quarter, uh, the stock went up because they had new users, um, and finally, uh, you know, it's almost like he 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 hit a wall. 
today, Thursday, you know, people will be listening to this tomorrow, but today, um, one of the investment firms, Trillium Asset Management, uh, filed a proposal that they want to oust Mark Zuckerberg as chairman and Facebook. And one of the things that they are really upset about is that he's both chairman and CEO. Uh, he owns sixty around around sixty percent of the of Facebook's voting shares, and it it means that every single decision that is made is is made by Mark Zuckerberg. And some of these decisions are, as of late, are not good decisions. And the result of that is that investors lost twenty percent. Uh, of the value of the company. And so can he be pushed out? Uh, technically, no. Uh, but you've seen this happen in other companies uh, on Wall Street over in the 80s and 90s, uh, in media empires, uh, and even in technology companies where the CEO, uh, even though they do have power and control, uh, loses confidence um, and uh, and the results are what we've seen happen with Facebook this week. The only caveat is, you know, for all of his fuck ups as of late, and he has a lot of them, um, from you know defending uh, Holocaust deniers on his platform to you name it, uh, he is still the guy who built this thing into what it is today. And so, is there anyone better out there? I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe the investment company that that wants him out has better ideas, but um, he may be the the best of the worst uh, of the alternatives uh, for them right now. But I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, just yet. If that stock continues to fall, I think you'll start to see a lot of very unhappy people. And they could actually go after the board to require that there that there be some changes. But is um, the stock's calamitous fall purely the result of this narrative catching up to him? Because Facebook also reported slow uh, um, or, you know, sort of the, the end of growth um, uh, in the United States and Canada, or, you know, I, I think that there was a slight uptick, but but it's not what we're used to seeing in these earnings reports, and um, and they were trying to open this sort of you know small shell corporation in China, which got nixed by the Chinese government. Is the stock price uh, also a reflection of the fact that investors may see that Facebook is peaked and that it's going to be very hard for um, for it to get any bigger than I guess you know two billion monthly active users? Great question, John. Uh, and yes and no. So it, one of the things that's, that's happening is that we've all known that Facebook was eventually going to peak. There's only a certain number of people in the world. There's only a certain number of countries that will allow Facebook to be in it. Uh, you can't sign up for the service twice, at least uh, at least you know legally. Um, and and so you know when you have a platform where you have one and a half billion daily active users, uh, you know one of the numbers that Mark Zuckerberg threw out yesterday, which I think he was trying to. To, to, to deflect from all the bad news is that uh, on Facebook's platforms concurrently, you know, Oculus, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, there are 2.5 billion people, different people who use the service on a daily, monthly basis. Uh, um, that's a huge number. That is a uh, uh, more than a quarter of the planet that is on this platform. Uh, and... Uh, and it's a great it's a great number. And you should be very proud of it. But at the same time, the plan has always been at Facebook, and this is something I've heard from people internally there. The plan has, had always been: we knew that we were eventually going to hit a wall with how many people we could sign up, and it was going to slow. So we knew that we had to 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 train uh, our investors and Wall Street to understand that it wasn't going to be about users, but it was going to be time spent on the platform. 
and that was why they started to do all the video stuff they've been doing. It was why they started to to compete with YouTube because you spend longer on the site if you watch video content or listen to audio and uh, than you do just looking at people's nonsense messages or photos. And uh, and the problem was that everything was going perfectly fine, and then the election scandal hit, and uh, and Facebook had to change its algorithms, it had to change its newsfeed, and uh, and as a result. Um, you had this this place where the goal that they were heading towards, which was let's get rid of, uh, let's let's steer what people are investing in away from people and towards the amount of time of eyeballs, got affected by that algorithmic change. Concurrently, what happened is in Europe. So Europe has a very very different philosophy around social media than we do in America. In America, we care less about privacy, partially because we're such a young nation. Uh, in Europe, uh, there's a lot of issues around privacy. There's still, you know, when you talk to uh, to people in Parliament in the UK, when you talk to uh, government officials in Germany, uh, they will tell you there's still a lot of uh, cultural fear based around what happened during World War II with the Holocaust, uh, with uh, with profiling, with race, all these things uh, that are still embedded in the cultures in Europe. And as a result, they they look at the way Facebook acted uh, during Brexit, uh, all of these different things, and they're like, eh, I don't think I want anything to do with that. And so you've actually seen a reversal happen in Europe, and there's also new rules that the, the EU has put in place around privacy that's affected Facebook and Google. And uh, and the result of it is that uh, user numbers have, have slowed uh, in that country, and they've also now started to take place in, in the U.S. And so I think that what Mark Zuckerberg is now, where he finds himself, is in a situation where if he he can't fix the problem, which is to get everyone back on the site and get the eyeballs up and give them more ads, until he fixes the problem, which is that the service is a disaster, which is, you you know, where people like Alex Jones are on there, and I don't want to be on a site where Alex Jones is on, but he can't kick Alex Jones off and Infowars because then all the right-wing people will leave, and he's kind of caught in this conundrum, and I don't really think he has any idea how to get out of it. So um, before we move on to the next question, uh, let me um, push you uh, one beat further. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg is still operating, you know, in charge, CEO, not, not just chairman, um, in 10 years? I think that a lot of people, I've asked a lot of people in the Valley who know Mark um, and who've worked with him and still work with him, you know, does Mark Zuckerberg ever leave Facebook and go somewhere else? And and the analogy that they all give is, especially in today's day and age where Mark Zuckerberg is is vilified by a lot of people and disliked by a lot of people, uh, um, he is not someone that people look up to in Silicon Valley anymore, uh, is that people liken him to uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft. And they say, if you look back when Bill Gates was at the top of his game and Microsoft was was the most valued company in tech, he was, I mean, I remember actually doing this uh, in the 90s when you, if you Google, not in, in like early aughts in the 90s, if you looked up, uh, Bill Gates's name online, and you looked at images. It was pictures of the Antichrist. Like that's right. what people thought of when they thought of Bill Gates. And now you think of this like old sweet guy who's just trying to give his money away as as quickly as he can to save the world. And a lot of people say that that's the direction that Zuckerberg will go. But I don't think. I think that actually 
that Bill Gates is and, more and by that, of a human I'm sorry, being. Nick, by that, do you mean that, that, that Zuckerberg is going to realize that being the CEO of Facebook is a distraction from his sort of more global ambitions? Yeah, I think that at some point, like, he, he you know, hand the reins over to a Cheryl if she sticks around or somebody like that. Right. Um, uh, I don't know if that would be in five years or 10 years or 20, uh, but I think that that would be the... That's the natural progression a lot of people predict. The problem is, and if you listened to Kara Swish's podcast interview with him a couple of weeks ago where mm-hmm. he was talking about, you know, where he was defending the Holocaust and he was talking about all this stuff, he doesn't seem like he cares all that much. Uh, you know, I've heard, I have a, a mutual friend of with, with Zuckerberg who told me that after the election, Zuckerberg said to him uh, that he sees he sees all of this stuff of, of the rise of Trump and the and and Obama and all the fall of Obama and all these things as a sine curve where it just up and down, up and down, and one you've got it's almost like a um, a pendulum swinging, like and that you know one minute it's it's to the far right, one minute it's to the far left, and and it just keeps going like that, and 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 the through line is kind of the middle. Uh, my response to that, of course, is well, did you see the Holocaust as as uh, as as one of those? And no, that was a really bad thing that happened. Uh, and there are a lot of really bad things that are happening today. But I think that Zuckerberg doesn't see – he just doesn't get it, in my personal opinion, from the things that I've heard him say and the actions that he's taken. And uh, and I think that the good thing about $120 billion falling off the face of, of, the, of the company value, if it stays that way, and it should – um, is that maybe it will drive him to get it, but I also don't know if he's wired to get it. And so to come back to answer that question, uh, is he wants to run the biggest company in the world. He wants to be seen as the greatest CEO in the world. Um, and uh, the question is, is is at what point does he say, okay, I'm going to go somewhere else to, to, to focus my energies and what those energies would be? All right, on to question number two, relatedly. Could Elon Musk, who's also had a, uh, a hell of a week, um, could he ever get pushed out of his co- one of his companies? And, and, and we're, we're bringing up Musk, of course, because coming off a week where he tried to get his spelunking equipment into the Thai cave, called the expert spelunker a pedophile, apologized, um, uh, Musk. Uh, basically forced a, a journalist into the witness protection program, um, calling the boss of a of a um, of someone seeking alpha, who who then sort of disappeared from the internet. And this is you know after all the bad news about consistent missed quarters at Tesla. Nick, what do you think? Are people going to give up on this guy at some point? Well, there's been uh, you know it's been. To talk about Mark Zuckerberg having a rough time, uh, Elon Musk has had a maybe rougher time. I don't know. What, what would you say? Rougher or equally rough? Or I don't know. These, uh, his, the the whole... upside is lower for him, um, and yeah. the behavior is more uh, – I, I think that um, defending Alex Jones in, in that world is uh, – there's that, that's the worst thing you could ever do. Um, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's worse than calling some you know calling a, a, a hero a, a pedophile. Um, so – but it's it's still pretty bad. So the the I think for there there have been a lot of shareholders that who who have in you know uh, in April there was there was talk that uh, shareholders were going to talk about removing Musk as chairman of Tesla. There's you know the stock has been hurt quite considerably because of his actions as of late. In in uh, um, I believe it was July uh, they actually the the board met and they decided not to try to remove him. Um, the the reality is that we live in a time, and this is related to Zuckerberg too, where the CEOs are essentially 
in their mind gods, and to a lot of people they are. And uh, and and there's there's a really interesting thing that happens where um, the CEOs think that the, that their stock price is so intertwined with um, with their how amazing they are uh, that that no one knows what are we investing in. Are we investing in uh, in Elon Musk or are we investing in this car company? And if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's it's kind of unclear too. You know, Tesla's stock is um, the the company is worth fifty billion dollars. Ford is worth five billion dollars. So even if you kind of do the math, there's no way that Tesla could be worth ten times more than what Ford's worth based on the revenues and so on and so forth. You're, so the reason the stock is so high at Tesla is because people are investing in Elon Musk, but. The thing, that, and the same thing with 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 Mark Zuckerberg, and the and the same thing with Evan Spiegel. All these things, they're investing in these people that they think are bigger and more important than they actually are. And the reason I say that is because there was no one who was more important to their stock and their company than Steve Jobs. And yet, when he died, I remember the stock fell eighty eight cents the day he died. It, it was not affected because it was clear very quickly that while Steve Jobs was an integral part of building Apple. It, the company could still go on um, and be successful without him. And I mean, look today, you know, Apple is has a market cap of $950 billion. I mean, it's almost the first trillion dollar company. And I think that, that if investors were to realize that while I'm sure Elon Musk isn't a, a brilliant CEO and comes up with brilliant ideas to solve really difficult problems, there is someone else out there that could do that equally as well or a team of people, um, and I think if investors were to realize that about these companies, that there's a pretty good chance that um, someone like Elon would not be around uh, or not have the power that they would uh, today. And it's just the pre the problem is that they don't realize that. They think that that uh, he's, you know, they believe the narrative that Elon Musk is creative, that he's the only one that can solve these problems. You know, one thing that um, that's also baked into a lot of these prices is the fact that um, Tesla is, I guess, it's probably valued closer to a technology company than a car company. Um, yep. And I was listening to uh, Dan Primack's uh, excellent podcast this morning, and he was uh, he mentioned that he talked to the, the CEO of Blue Apron, uh, which has had a, just a, a very uh, devilish year in the public markets, and he said, what happened? And and the CEO responded, we were a consumer company that was masquerading as a tech company. And we, you know, we were humbled when, when, you know, the public markets sort of, you know, threw that veneer off. Tesla obviously is a public company. At what point, even given how technologically savvy and enhanced cars are becoming, at what point uh, will investors um, begin to, to, Treat Tesla like a consumer or an, or industrial company, or is that really the singular role of Musk? That just having him there makes you a tech company. So I spoke to someone uh, yesterday who was a former uh, investor, in Chicago, um, and uh, has shorted a lot of these companies that we're talking about today. And uh, and that person's argument is that. Uh, that Tesla is so far overvalued based on a, being a car company that it's just insane and that it should be maybe a, a tenth of what it, it is valued at or, or a quarter or something like that. And, and I think that the problem is, is that you look at these companies 
and you don't know what's a tech company and what's a car company, what's a tech company and what's a communications company, what's a tech company and what's a, you know, a, a video company. I mean, if you look at Netflix's stock, if you if you look at Netflix's stock in parallel to Amazon's stock, they 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 fluctuate and move at the exact same pace up until a couple of months ago when Netflix started to fall. And the reason for that is because there was it was very difficult to judge Netflix compared to uh, other consumer companies that were like it, uh, that were creating content or, or cable companies, or whatever. So they, it was partially judged based on Amazon Prime video content. And Amazon Prime video content was not judged based on how well and how many people watched it, but it was based on how many people bought a roll of toilet paper, toilet paper that day or toothpaste. And so you're valuing Netflix based on how many people shop at Amazon. And I think the same is true for for Tesla and Elon Musk and and that, and why I think the solution is that not that these that Tesla needs to fall down to where a car company is but it's that that needs to happen simultaneously while while Ford and GM and others need to come up to what a technology company is because at this point they're all kind of equal they're all the same you know it's it's uh the New York Times is making video content uh, in the same way that Netflix is making video content, in the same way that Amazon is making video content, in the same way that Condé Nast is. Uh, GM is has a, has cars with technology in the same way that Tesla does, and so on. And I think that that everything's so far. No one knows what their what the value of anything is anymore. In the same way, they don't know how to value a social media company. And so, Wall Street kind of needs to sit down and think about what these the values of these companies are and kind of somehow bring them together. And I think that that's what we're seeing happening with these stocks falling. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Are you suffering from stagnant workflow, lemon flavored depletion, cross-platform synergy, having a career? You might be entitled to advice from Brandon, vitamin water brand ambassador and professional busy man. If you call 833-477-8339 to see if he can squeeze you in today, he might be able to talk to you. Because as Brandon said first, before anyone else said it, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Once again, call Brandon at 833-477-8339 to see if he can squeeze you in today. Disclaimer, Brandon is an unpaid spokesperson for Vitamin War with zero years of experience who should not be trusted with business advice and did not make up the saying about life giving you lemons. Let's move on to the third question, Nick. You're going to engage my um, uh, a, a bit of my sort of fantastical thinking here, but I noticed this week that 23andMe, the genetic testing company, raised um, about $300 million in funding. 23andMe obviously had some, some serious sort of, I guess, regulation-related issues early on, but the company's back on track now. And, and it seems like um, to... The investor community—it's got a massive amount of value. Obviously, they raised a ton of a ton of cash, but a massive amount of value in the fact that it's a you know um, sort of data harvesting center for uh, for DNA, which is incredibly valuable for for you know millions of reasons. It made me think: Is there a world in which Theranos, a company that you've chronicled uh, significantly and, and and rather critically? Is there a world in which Theranos, if it had been less ambitious, could have made it 
um, uh, by not lying so much, by not stealing other, you know, using other people's technology and lying about it, by not claiming it was going to solve all the, the 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 problems of the world, but just by coming up with a with a cool product that was able to offer like reasonably spiffy blood tests and and hold on to that data. Could Theranos have, have not been a, a total dumpster fire? That's a good question. I I think that the problem with Theranos is uh, it was bullshit from the start. You know, I mean. Uh, it, John Carrier, who we had on the podcast uh, about three, four weeks ago, had talked about this in his book. Um, I remember when we wrote the first piece in Vanity, the big feature in Vanity Fair about about the company and uh, and speaking to uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of uh, and founder of Theranos, who uh, I spoke to her professor, who she had originally approached about the idea, and and she said, I remember telling her year ten years ago that. It was physically impossible as a scientist uh, uh, to get the to test for the the things that she wanted to test through one droplet of blood, uh, and I think that you know there's a world in which Theranos could have actually existed and worked for a dozen tests, maybe, uh, and that it could have been a really important company that had done that. But it goes back to the idea, you know, by the end of things, right before it it collapsed, uh, Elizabeth Holmes was going around telling people that she could do a thousand tests. Really, she could do one, which was a herpes test. But um, uh, I think it goes back to this idea that this, you know, God complex of people in the Valley, that they believe that the thing that they are doing uh, is the most important thing in the world, and they also believe that uh, they're the only ones that can do it, and uh, and they thrive on the attention, and they uh, they're they're pretty messed up individuals. It's it's but interesting. Isn't it, look- it's the god complex for sure, but isn't it also that they're they're incentivized to to make those proclamations because of the way capital is raised out there? That that um, yeah, that, completely. You know, I mean, just to get back to the, the, you know our, even our previous point, like. The reason why so many companies position themselves as tech companies to investors is because they'll have higher valuations and they can raise more money. Um, so there's an incentive to to bullshit, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have friends who have, who I have a friend who had a startup uh, about five years ago, um, who actual actually had revenue and was profitable, and there was a competitor. Uh, who did not have revenue at all, and the competitor was was valued at like ten times more because they could bullshit and say this is what we're worth because there was nothing to there was no numbers to say well this is actually really what you're worth. Whereas the friends company was valued at much less, and I think that you know that was that was always the dirty secret in the valley that you if you made revenue you were going to be worth less, and uh, and I think that there there's this. It's interesting when you look at politicians. There's a specific type of personality uh, that becomes a politician. It's massive ego. Uh, doesn't care about criticism for the most part. I mean, you can't really care about criticism. It's like Donald Trump, Jim Jordan, all these people, Paul Ryan, that are that that have that want power and they thrive on it, and that's what feeds them. In Silicon Valley, there's this kind of – it's almost like a new, unique personality that doesn't necessarily care about the money. I, th- I really don't think that that 90% of these people give two shits about the money. Uh, but the leaderboard for them is is 
how they're remembered, how many magazine covers they've been on, how many people have tweeted about them that day, you know, how many times they've been likened to Steve Jobs. Like, they thrive on different things. And and it goes to their head incredibly quickly. And I think that uh, for Theranos, for Elon Musk, for Zuckerberg, for all these people, they... What happens is they start to kind of inoculate themselves with people who don't disagree with them because they don't want to be disagreed with. And as a result, you end up with people saying things like calling a cave diver a pedophile or saying that their company is worth $10 billion and can do a thousand different tests or that they shouldn't ban info wars from their website. Uh, and it's incredibly destructive to the rest of the world. Uh, and and we now live in a society where this is the case. And I think that, you know, um, it's it's a problem that I, I haven't seen take – it's very different from, from problems on Wall Street, from politics, from other businesses uh, and its specific personalities that uh, that kind of glam to Silicon Valley. And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild to see these kinds of people in, in real life and see how they act and things they do. Yeah, you once said something that really stuck with me. Um, uh, it was a long time ago, maybe a year ago, but um, you'd heard that Elizabeth Holmes was was at some party, and I asked you wide-eyed, "Oh, did did everyone there shun her, or or, or was she sort of the talk of the of the party? Were they all gossiping?" And you said, "No, um, a lot of a lot of founders are actually sympathetic to her in a funny way because they know that they sort of faked it till they made it in their companies that just that they weren't dealing with." Um, you know, uh, science and medicine and, and, and health and very serious life or death issues. Um, so, uh, but, but they were, they were sympathetic to the, the core sort of, uh, you know, bullshitter complex. Oh, completely. Look, I mean, you know, I wrote a whole book on Jack Dorsey and Twitter and the, you know, in the reporting, what was so fascinating was that Jack Dorsey had been quoted with all these amazing quotes that he'd used in like interviews with 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 even a Vanity Fair actually I remember one of them by David Kirkpatrick and and people had tweeted the quotes and it was so fascinating he was such an amazing individual and it turned out that they were all quotes that he'd taken from Steve Jobs he'd literally lifted verbatim from like Playboy magazine interviews and and things like that and um and and today, you know, you there are people who work at Twitter that say Jack Dorsey has actually become – he used to be a terrible, terrible CEO, and he's actually become uh, a great CEO who's running two companies uh, that are both doing way better than they were two years ago. Um, and so there is a fake it till you make it. But, but at the same time, like the difference between s- starting a company because you have a great idea and seeing it through – to being the next Microsoft, Google, or whatever, uh, they're, they're two different people, which is why a lot of CEOs end up getting pushed out of Silicon Valley. And I think that, um, that they, this, one of the things that happens is people, people fake it too much, uh, and, uh, and they end up suffering the consequences of that. One thing I do want to point out, you know, what's interesting, going back to the 23andMe thing, um, is, uh, you know, as you said, 23andMe, they got a $300 million investment uh, from Glaxo. And, one thing that we're going to start to see, the reason that Glaxo invested in them was because if they have access to a trove of DNA, they can start to figure out which drugs to work on right. and to put more resources behind. Uh, it's a big data play really more than anything. But I think that you're, gonna, you're going to start to see uh, a lot more Theranos-like companies uh, come out of Silicon Valley. Um, uh, 
and blurred the line between what a health tech company is and what a Theranos was and, and a tech company and a data company and so on. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, you know, you've got to hope, I hope, that the people who run these are, the, are, not, are not Elizabeth Holmes and Elon Musk's, but are, but are people who are, you know, really trying to actually make a difference in the space because um, there's going to be a lot, you know, with, with Theranos, as far as we know, no one died. There were people who were definitely heart, hermed, uh, uh, harmed and hurt. I can't say those words. Uh, but, you know, there's going to be a lot more opportunities where there could be real consequences, um, especially when you kind of look at the data aspect of it. I've heard from someone in Silicon Valley recently that, that based on your Google searches, Google can predict if you have pancreatic cancer with like 90% accuracy. Uh, you know, these are there are things that these companies are going to be able to do in the in the not too distant future uh, that can affect people's lives. Um, and uh, let's just hope that there's actual, real, authentic people running the companies that are making decisions around those. Question number four: We learned dun, dun, that dun. Um, Robert Mueller might be looking into Trump's Twitter feed to see if, among other things. He used it as a as a sort of blunt instrument of intimidation. Um, what do you think Mueller is going to learn from Trump's Twitter feed besides uh, the the value of uh, of bots and trolls and, and all caps uh, typing? All caps. Could you imagine if Mueller if, if when he when he finally puts out a re- his report, it's in I all know. caps? Oh my God. <laughs> that guy's going to need a fucking bath for days. I know. I it I, it's amazing what what he. I mean, he he honestly comes. I look. He's a Republican, and I'm, I disagree with a lot of his politics. But he is clearly an incredibly smart guy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Really uh, smart. And knows exactly what he's doing in in the process that he's going through. Um. Okay. So the report that you're talking about came from the Times this week about. Uh, the, one of the things that's actually going on now with Mueller beyond the Russia investigation and everything is an obstruction of justice uh, look at the president, uh, Donald Trump, based on the firing of Comey and uh, Sessions and so on. And the thing that he's doing to pull this together is looking at Trump's Twitter feed. And what struck me immediately when I saw that was for the past 10 years, I've been writing books and magazine features and columns and so on. And one of the the only way I've been able to do the big long form pieces I've been able to pull off in a kind of narrative nonfiction way is because of social media. And so when I wrote the book on Twitter, I went and I remember I interviewed Dorsey and Evan Williams and Biz Stone and Noah Glass and all these people, and their memories were fallible. They couldn't remember what they were wearing on certain days, or they would tell me stories that didn't seem like they were accurate and. And what I would do is I would go back to Twitter and I would go to YouTube and, and Instagram and I would look at photos and I would look at tweets and timestamps and be able to tell who was telling the truth and who was lying based on those things. And it has for me become without question the most valuable tool as an investigative reporter to be able to, to, to really paint the room and tell people where people were and to, 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 to fact check the truth. And I find it so fascinating that it is now being used on Trump to fact check uh, essentially his presidency and his and, and potential obstruct, obstruction of justice charge. This, the other thing that's always really kind of boggled my mind is, you know, the whole thing about where like there's always a tweet that Trump has sent in the past that is a hypocr- hypocrisy of something that he's saying today. 
for example, like, you know, he, when he went after Iran earlier in the week in all caps, people went back and found all these tweets that he had sent just three, four, five years ago where he was like, I bet Iran, uh, Obama's going to start a war with Iran to deflect from the bad economy or something like that. You know those tweets I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. So, and I always, I could never understand. I was like, did Trump not um, delete those tweets because he just didn't care and he wanted the attention about based on that. And I don't think that's the case because he's incredibly egotistical and his feelings would be heard if he were seen as, as, as being and saying the same thing. I think that Trump, because he lives so much in them moment and is so obsessed with what people in front of him think, I don't think he actually remembers that he has like a Twitter timeline that people can go look at. And I think that this is the case with this, with what Mueller's doing, looking at his timeline. I don't think that Trump is aware that he could have completely fucked himself based on the timestamps that are associated with the tweets that he sent. That's just my personal opinion. You know, but one, you know, one sort of um, discrepancy between Jack Dorsey or Noah Glass's uh, Twitter feed and Trump's is that he's he's not. Um, He's not necessarily saying, uh, "Oh, I was, you know, I'm I'm in San Francisco on this Thursday, you know, July fourteenth, two thousand fifteen." It, you know, it, it's uh, what he says is is largely inane, and um, and he's not really time stamping himself or or or, or datelining himself. I, I'm just wondering, um, do you think that this will be actually productive? Productive in terms of, um, uh, you know, well, being fruitful in the investigation because Comey and Sessions are, are, are two people who are largely not in the Twitter generation, so to speak. So it's hard to know, um, even though Trump's Twitter feed drives news cycles, were they actually feeling the sort of, um, uh, you know, social media mob frenzy that, that we do feel when, when Trump comes, comes after us? Well, I don't. I don't agree with you. I do think that if you look at the, if I was looking at the tweets that that, uh, that they were talking about, and there, it is timestamp based. Like it's, you know, when he's talking about, I told person to do X, and I turned, and then a week later I told them to do Y, and then, and then you, you know, the, you can actually see like the, it's almost like Trump was A/B testing mm-hmm. what would work as a justification in, 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 in an obstruction of justice case, like. And he's doing it. It's 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 all there, out there in the open. I I think that um, you know, the there there is a silver lining to this. I I do think that the worst thing to ever come out of Silicon Valley, in my personal opinion, uh, is Twitter. I think that it is. Um, I think that the that the company. Uh, does nothing to try to create a, a platform that engages people in positive ways, uh, and I think that it has, you know, it. The result of it is this: is what Trump is like. I I actually went through this a, a couple of weeks ago. I had tweeted something that um, the alt right got their fingers on, and um, uh, and it was. You know, I mean, I I, I didn't care. I just it, I, it was just kind of fascinating to watch. But they it was like a, a shitstorm uh, on my Twitter feed for a couple of days and coming after me and, and my family and all this stuff. And what was so fascinating is I've had those experiences before as a as a columnist. I remember writing something about uh, some tech stories that people didn't like and um, and other things that have happened on social media. And the times they've happened before four, five, six, seven years ago. Um, and now 
it's it's so much more vitriolic and mean and vicious and really trying to like cause harm uh and uh and they move from twitter to other social networks and they email you and they you know all of these things that happen and it, i i for me it was a very eye opening experience because it was like oh wow this is i didn't realize how much worse it had gotten on this platform uh and and I think that if there's any good that can come from Mueller looking at Trump's tweets, it's that Trump tweets less, hopefully. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Um, but, you know, to me, this is just another example of the fact that this is a platform uh, that has done absolutely nothing to try to make discourse better. Uh, and, um, and, you know, as a result, here we are. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Well, if you were an investor in Facebook this week, you are probably not getting a lot of sleep after losing billions and billions of dollars. But not to worry, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help you. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These people here at Mattress Firm are experts. They are the mattress experts of the mattress world. They can help you build your bed from headboard to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor, and it is beautiful bedroom decor, I must add. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Get it? They cover you with their bed sheets. Okay. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can get 10% off with the code PODCAST10. That's PODCAST10. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial, so you can rest assured that you'll get the best mattress or your money back. And they also offer a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you know that you paid the perfect price for your perfect mattress. Once again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and save 10% with the code PODCAST10. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, not only are they in your backyard, but this means that they have the ability to offer you deals that no one else can. And if you go and check out the stores, you will absolutely love it. Tell them we sent you. Once again, if you want to just go online and get it done really quick and get a better night's sleep, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, enter the code PODCAST10, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0, and save 10% on your mattress. All right, Nick, the final question, the, the, the most pressing question. Um, it has been a uh, confusing week for the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Um, it, was big, it was big news earlier this month when, um, when Netflix missed its, its – it had a bad quarter. It missed its numbers. Um, uh, one side of the argument presented was that um, it was a blip. You know, it wasn't going to happen again. Um, uh, the other side was that, um, it's just going to spend more money to, to sort of correct it anyway. I, I think that the scary thing for the rest of the world about what's happening with the FANG stocks is these are going to become the biggest content acquirers and producers if, if they aren't already. I mean, they, you know, um, I guess they still compare this to some traditional media companies. What do you think this this means for the rest of the media landscape that now Netflix is, is going to spend its way, for instance, to, to $20 billion in debt. I think that, um, uh, Netflix is in a, is, is, it's interesting. Netflix is taking the approach of like, let's not just throw some spaghetti against the wall and see what happens, but let's throw like a spaghetti factory against the wall and see what sticks it. And, What's so fascinating, I remember when the first interview I ever did for the podcast was with Bob Iger, 
Um, and I remember him telling me, I asked him about if he worries about Netflix, and, and I remember him saying quite specifically, he said, you know, they're creating hundreds and hundreds of different type of content every year. Uh, and they're trying, you know, with the hope that one or two things take off and with the hope that some of this content is going to appeal to micro audiences and, and so on. And he said, you know, at Pixar, we make one movie a year. And that one movie can return hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Uh, and it's, it's, and it's a question of, it's, it's two philosophies and I don't know which one is going to win out. And there's a world in which both of them win out. I doubt mm. that that's the case. But it's two philosophies. Netflix is let's spend $8 billion a year on content, create so much content that hopefully each little thing will subscribe, drive subscribers to sign up. Uh, it doesn't matter if the content's great or if it's good or whatever. Let's just, just do it um, and, uh, and hope for the best. And whereas... Uh, Pixar and Disney is it takes the complete opposite approach with well, like let's be slow know, let's be but but yeah. don't forget that I mean Disney just paid seventy two billion to um, to acquire some the of the assets of twenty first century Fox and yeah and and John Stanky the new CEO of Warner Media which is the the combined assets of the um, you know the, uh, Time Warner in, in its ATT uh, AT and T uh, um, sort of parent hold he also you know got dinged for saying like HBO we need you to make more stuff. Um, it, it seems like, despite Iger, or Iger's um, sort of uh, braggadocio, and it's definitely true, people in Hollywood do make like sort of straight-to-video jokes about Netflix, but they're all spending more to, to make more bets, right? Like that's something that's going to happen. Yeah, but it's also it's. I think it's it's. You, they're spend Netflix is spending more to make more bets, but it's spending. It's it's almost doing it without thought. In, in some respects, it's. Um, it's, you know, like I think w when I think about the content that I consume, uh, it, there, it's very little of it is Netflix. Um, and there's some amazing stuff on there, but there's a lot of utter trash and garbage and that they spent a lot of money on. And, and uh, I think, you know, Amazon would probably be doing the same thing if it hadn't have been through all the Me Too stuff that it had been through in the last um, – uh, the last couple of years uh, and the reorganization of what they were focused on from from a TV standpoint, um, but it's it it just seems like if Netflix's subscribers are slowing down, um, maybe the approach isn't working as well. Uh, that's that's what I'm trying to say is um, uh, you know Amazon now wants you know Jeff Bezos has told Amazon's team behind Prime Prime TV that he wants a Game of Thrones. He wants the thing that put HBO on the map. And and uh, and yet at HBO, now they're going to be doing more, more probably crap, you know, because they're being pushed that way. And so it, my personal opinion, and I've always believed this, is that slower, more thoughtful, uh, better content will always beat a load of crap. Um, mm. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. It seems like, um, right, e even for the people who are kind of short Netflix, who, who think that th this miss signifies some sort of larger problems, um, either way, Netflix is going to keep spending. It it's just a question, I guess, right? Of will will, will the other companies uh, will they will they run out of will they run out of money? I mean, the, Sarandos, um, chief content officer of Netflix, has that famous quote: "We have to be HBO before HBO can become us." And it seems like 
AT and T is is sort of saying to HBO like let's you know let's be more like Netflix even though they never mm-hmm. mention Netflix by name. Is there some fear? Do you think that um, you know HBO or Disney they lose their brand identity by doing what Netflix does? Netflix is synonymous with placing a lot of bets, and maybe you know within there you get an Ozark or a House of Cards, but um, uh, but it's it's meant to be mass and consumer. HBO is meant to be very niche. Yeah, I think absolutely. If there's one thing we've learned from our industry and the media industry, uh, you could be a 150-year-old company and fall flat on your face overnight. I mean, uh, look at Time Magazine, for example, and what happened there. And, uh, um, the you know, if it wasn't for Donald Trump becoming president, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Vanity Fair, I mean, they would not have – these companies would not have the readership – that they do uh, today, I think it would have it would you know things could have slowed down dramatically, and I think Donald Trump is the best thing to happen to the news industry and the worst thing to happen in the news industry in decades. But but the, my po- larger point is that these companies could easily you know could you can be HBO today and and gone tomorrow, and uh, uh, you know one thing that technology does more and more is move so much faster than it ever has in history, and I think that. Um, uh, I, you know, again, it kind of goes back to this idea of like the 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 concept of a f- movie company becoming a uh, tech company and a tech company becoming a movie company and so on. Like it seems like everyone's racing to copy each other, and there's a world in which there's the people who pull it off and succeed, and there's a world in which they all kind of come together, and we just have more of them. Uh, but you know, it, only time will tell if they if if all who. Time will tell who actually makes the right choice, and I'm not as I as I sit here as a consumer. And look, these you know, let's give Netflix the the amazing credit it deserves. You know, this the the world that we live in today was one that um, uh, the Reed Hastings came up with in '98 when he came up with Netflix. Like he knew that this was what he was going to build. Uh, uh, so he had incredible foresight, and so I'm sure he knows exactly what he's doing, but. Um, but you know you can still make mistakes along the way, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the next few quarters. I think I'm going to become a tech, a tech company, Nick. That's um, that's my long. You know, I think uh, I look forward to talking shit about you and acting like <laughs> I know more than than you do, even though you're probably worth uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. But then I look forward to the day that your stock tanks, uh, and um, uh, and I get to you know make fun of you on Twitter. I'm going to change the world, make it a better place, and I'm scalable. I'm going to change the world, make it a better place. And if, if I have a question for you, uh, yeah. last question. I know we, I know we're done with our high five. If you could, if you could start a company today, any company, what would it be? Oh boy, um, I, I have a hundred million dollars. I'm willing to give you for for. I mean, financial I, I think investment. that if I um, if I could do something outside of my. Uh, uh, sort of core competence um, uh, skill set. It seems like biomedical, biotech, like you know, the Silicon Valley money is now really leaving Silicon Valley, which I think is a good thing. You know, it's it's going to places like Cambridge and Boston and and Austin and and and, and cities where there's there's massive research. And so when I when I look at the deal flow and I see that that these really really important um, uh, medical research and development companies are are getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I'm I'm very inspired by that. I think I think that's a 
um, a good thing. Um, but what would I do? Oh my God. I think that I would start a, um, a, a technology enabled hot dog truck, Nick, that would be able you, to you do um, like your hot dogs, don't you? Yeah, I, lo- I love hot dogs, and I think that I would be able to have uh, it'd be the Uber of hot dogs, and you the would Uber just tap it, dogs. and no matter where you were, um, some drone would would deliver two hot dogs to you. I think that there should be no hot dog restaurants, no hot dog carts anymore, no 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 trucks. I take that back. This is just going to be an on demand service that will um, deliver two hot dogs with with ketchup, mustard, and relish to you wherever you are in the world. And are I'm you seeking talking, seed money for an initial valuation of fifty million. Are you talking drone delivery of hot dogs? Drone delivery, or? absolutely. Drone delivery. We are a tech-enabled. We're a tech company. Um, Got it. And uh, and we're and it'll be kosher too. Um, so yeah. So uh, I think actually it's now a initial seed round for a hundred million dollars. Uh, all right. Well, let me let me see what I can do here to get you that funding, uh, and uh, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Let me know. I. Um, uh, do you want to hear mine? I, yeah, I, I guess so. Before, why not? Before we go. Yeah, why not? I believe that vehicles – I'm actually I, – I love cars. Like I, I, I have a bit of a car fetish that I, I read all the car blogs and things like that. And I love old classic cars. And I think that when you look at vehicles and cars, they have not really adapted to the world we live in today. And I feel like what I would, what I would love to do is a, a vehicle company, not a car company – that creates vehicles that are incredibly safe, almost like motorcycles for like single people or two, one or two people or for groceries or whatever, uh, that, but that take advantage of all the technology we have today, like um, so that like if it's a motorcycle, it can't tip over because it's got um, uh, actuators and accelerometers in it that can, can sense the direction you're going, uh, you know, all, all things like that. I think that there's an opportunity to kind of, to not build vehicles that have four wheels and five seats and a steering wheel. Uh, I'm not talking about autonomous driverless cars. I'm talking about like vehicles that you can navigate cities in uh, that are not bicycles and not scooters uh, and not motorcycles, but something uh, that's incredibly safe uh, and inexpensive. Um, That's what I would do. You want to invest? I wish you the best of luck, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, on that note, should we uh, should we read the uh, the thank yous? Yeah, let, over right. to you. Thank thank you to my guest today, me, and of course you, John Kelly. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen, subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with me, Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Player, anywhere you get your podcasts, and don't forget to leave a fucking review while you're there. It's not that hard to do that. Right, John? Leave a review. Just leave a review. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors this week, Vitamin Water and Mattress Firm. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week for a guest that is not me and is not John Kelly and is probably smarter and nicer and kinder than the two of us. Let's hope. Let's hope. Thanks, John. See you, Nick. Bye.